Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We're physicians and professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. We're excited to welcome Dr. Farzad Mostashari today. But first, we always check in on what's current hot topics in health and healthcare. And Harlan, what are you thinking of today? Surprise me. Well, just today, I saw a headline that talked about Novid. Do you know what a Novid is, Howie? I do not. Come on, a Novid? A Novid? I don't, it's, I don't know. I can't. Someone who hasn't had COVID. Oh, I should have known that. That's a good one. So tell me about that. Tell me about that. Well, I don't know. So there were these headlines today that said, uh, there was a paper that came out that said, if you were physically active, you know, then you were more likely to be a Novid. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's just one of these things that's sort of blasting out. So I thought, well, let me just take a closer look at this paper and see really what it says. And, and you know, this is something that appeared in JAMA Network Open, and it's called uh, Pre-Pandemic Physical Activity and Risk of COVID-19 Diagnosis and Hospitalization of Older Adults. This group of investigators pooled three different prospective studies, and they, they had asked people before the pandemic about their exercise level. And then after the pandemic, they asked them about their, whether they had had COVID. And, um, and then they were sort of putting together, well, who was more likely to have had COVID or to have been hospitalized COVID? But, you know, when these things come out in the headlines, you know, they come out in such authoritative ways. Oh, yeah. You know, in sort of saying, well, people should have exercised or, you know, people who exercised. Well, immediately you might be thinking, well, people who exercise are probably different than people who don't yeah, exercise. Yeah, is it causation or is it association? Yeah. But, but there's a lot more to these papers, too, as you dig in. I mean, look, I always want to honor the fact that academics are putting the other things out there for talking. It's a question how it gets translated. But this was about self-reported physical activity. So all the physical activities levels were self-reported, which can induce a bit of recall bias, people, you know, whether they're accurately classifying themselves. These were all studies, you know, two of them are vitamin studies. So they're all studies that are attracting specific kinds of individuals to even join them. So there's a bit of about selection bias and questions whether it can be generalized to other populations. And then the question is really, how well could they tell who hadn't been infected by COVID? Because a lot of people were infected, maybe not, they didn't know it. But uh, still, that, that would, but that would still be a good thing to know. If, if people that were more physically active had a lower likelihood of symptomatic COVID, that would still be a good finding, right? Yeah, but I, I, I'm just saying that, you know, again, you're depending on people's reporting for all of this stuff. And uh, maybe it's maybe it's true. I mean, I'd like to think it's true, by the way. I mean, we do know that there are a lot of risk factors for adverse events with COVID. Yeah. I mean, obesity, you know, hypertension, cardiometabolic risk factors or social like you said, hypertension, for example. So but but I guess I'm just sort of saying, you know, when you see this broadcast, you know, it always makes me wonder, you know, what what people are thinking about when they read this, because. It's really, you know, it's more like a study that's throwing out there the possibility that physical activity could help you ward off the adverse effects of, of an illness like COVID. It would be a good thing if that's true. I'm just saying that we're sort of early in the stage of trying to understand it rather than, than it, that this proved it. It's a lot harder to tell people that you can't be obese or that you must get thin. It's a lot easier to say to people that some minimum level of physical activity is protective for you particularly for those that aren't disabled. And so it is something that we should talk more about because people are always like, you should wear masks during COVID season. You should do this. Well, physical activity may be just as protective as any of those items. I think it's a good point. I'll tell you this. In the areas that we have uncertainty, I'm not one of those people that says, well, those people shouldn't do it. 
I think it's a good place to place your bets. I mean, you know, both you and I believe strongly in the value of physical activity. Yep. We think it's important for people to maintain function and, and overall health. There's lots of good studies that suggest that that's true. I think it's worth doing it until proven otherwise. But I'm just saying this study to me is not strong evidence no, right. that it helped people prevent. But but yeah, I'm a, I remain a big promoter of exercise and physical activity for me sure. Me too. Hey, we got a great guest today. Let's let's get on to the next segment. Dr. Farzad Mostashari is the chief executive officer and co-founder of the public benefit corporation, Alidade. We'll get into what Alidade does in a few minutes, but suffice it to say that it's one of the most exciting startups in healthcare of the last decade, and nobody is better able to tell the story than this man. Our listeners will recall that two years ago, almost exactly, we had the CEO of Allidade Care Solutions on the podcast, and she's now the director of the CDC and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, that being our alum, Mandy Cohen. Dr. Mostashari is passionate about the intersection of healthcare and technology. Before founding Allidade in 2014, he was in the Department of Health and Human Services National Coordinator for Healthcare Information Technology. He also created the New York City Primary Care Information Project and worked at the Brookings Institution in an expert role for the Engelberg Center for Healthcare Reform. He received his undergraduate degree and Master's of Science in Population Health from Harvard, and then his medical degree from Yale School of Medicine before doing his internal medicine residency at the Massachusetts General Hospital. And I want to start off from there, although feel free to go back even beyond that, but what caused you to want to go right to work in the epidemic intelligence service of the CDC right after residency? You know, in today's day and age, not that many people do that, but it is a very proven path for a career. What, what caused you to think about that? The epidemic intelligence service is a dream job, actually. When I was doing residency, I, I absolutely knew that I wanted to, to do it. And I was, I was truly inspired by the combination of epidemiologic rigor, the starting with Alex Langmuir, and, and really it is the signal institution that has trained so many of public health leaders, but also the ability to be in the work. I was at the School of Public Health before I did med school, and one of the things that I loved about the EIS is how gosh darn applied it is. On my first day at the job in the New York City Health Department, I showed up a little late and Emily, uh, my my, um, my my boss uh, said, "There's a there's a foodborne outbreak. Go investigate it." <laughs> and I got into a car and and went out to see it. So there's it was it was just an unbelievable opportunity. And for me, it was this concept almost of pure public health as opposed to uh, healthcare. And I think in my career to come, I ended up actually bringing those two closer together over time. Yeah, you definitely, you definitely did. And I want to just point out, because we didn't make your bio big enough, like you went to work in public service in the New York City Commissioner's Office of the Department of Public Health, I think. Um, and then, as we did note, went to work in government. So I, I just, as one quick follow-up before I turn it over to Harlan, did you foresee, when you were in medical school at Yale, or even before, did you foresee that you would have a career that would be unusual for a typical physician of that time? I, I, I knew that I was asking questions that other people weren't. I, I knew that I didn't feel like I totally fit in. When I was in med school, 
I definitely felt like I'm, I'm a little bit like insider outsider, which is why I like the bow tie. It, to me, it, it exemplifies a little bit of the, you're a weirdo, but also maybe you went to mass general. Um, <laughs> and, and to me, it was like, I'm in the emergency room and I'm, we're learning and we're being taught about persons having trouble breathing with asthma and you give them nebulizer treatments and how do you monitor that? And how do you take care of that human being in front of you? And I would be there wondering like, well, why, why is this kid here? Why, why this kid? Why, why from this zip code? And why today? What's going on today? You know? And that to me is, is the essence of epidemiology. I'd just like to take a few minutes before we get into Allidade to talk a little bit about your role as the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology, ONC, at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. You, you just served for a really relatively short time. I think it was only 2011 to 2013 or something. It was a relatively short time, but you really played a pivotal role during that time on so many key initiatives. I mean, when I, when I look back on it, promotion of electronic health records, you, know, you were instrumental in the implementation of the Meaningful Use Incentive Program, which, which was established to try to guide the proper implementation of EHRs, the expansion of health information exchanges, a lot of support for innovation and interoperability, recognizing that for this to work well, systems needed to be able to talk to each other. You were a champion for patient engagement. There was really a strong emphasis on patient engagement and empowerment through this technology, which found its manifestation later on in 21st Century Cures Act and continues to today. Public health, I think, probably building on what you were doing in CDC and really focusing on how do you leverage health IT to improve public health outcomes. And then also, you know, as I looked at it, there was cybersecurity and privacy stuff that was also at the center. I mean, in a very short time, you got a lot done. I wanted to ask you what you're most proud of during that time. And what was the secret to being able to make those accomplishments on so many fronts at a time of sort of great transition in the healthcare system and in the IT systems? Well, uh, I'm not good at the, what are you proud of? Because as you rattled those off, most of what went through my mind was the ways in which I felt that I didn't do a good job. It's true that we went from, I joined uh, actually as principal deputy national coordinator, David Blumenthal, who was the first post high tech national coordinator in charge of rolling out the regional extension center program, the health state health information program, programs and policies, right? That was my job. And that plus the time I was national coordinator in that roughly five year time period, four or five year time period, we went from 9% of hospitals being on electronic health records to 90%. It's true, but I didn't go into it to get adoption of electronic health records. I went into it because I really believed in my bones that if we did it right, we could get to some of the outcomes that, that was the reason I got interested in, in the first place. And prime among them, Harlan, was reducing heart attacks and strokes through better hypertension management. Hmm. We're, still, we're still working on that. We're still working on that. And you know, the, like the reason why we said you got to standardize medication databases, the reason why you got to standardize problem list, the reason why you want to have decision support, why you want to have registry functions, why you want to have quality measures. These were all a cluster of capabilities that would lead us to be able to solve what I thought was the heart of the problem, which was the lack of 
information and computable data. And it turned out that wasn't the heart of the problem. And blood pressure control didn't freaking change. And the Million Hearts program that I helped get off the ground didn't save a million lives from heart attacks and strokes. So yes, I think I, I now can look back and say, yes, we did some good things. But what I felt when I left during the government shutdown in October of 2013, I put my badge on my desk and I walked out and I went by the Washington, rode my bicycle home past the Washington Monument and I may have shed a tear. And it wasn't from pride. It was from the feeling that, that I had kind of won the battle, lost the war. You know what? And you and I've had this discussion before. I think I've told you that I think you're hard on yourself in that way, because what you built has foundationally allowed so much more to go on top. And it it probably is uh, unrealistic to think in a healthcare system like we have that, you know, men's change can occur rapidly. But I will tell you that a lot of the things that are in the works today that I believe will ultimately manifest in those improved outcomes that you saw could not have occurred without the foundational efforts that were made while you were there. So, you know, I, maybe we all feel at times we wish you could have done more, but it also, I think, is important to, to reflect on what was laid down because uh, it, it's very important. Thank you. No, and, and I do think that if you do have the right, you know, so then what is the heart of the problem? And the heart of the problem is that people make a lot more profit treating strokes than preventing strokes from happening in the first place. They're huge buildings, uh, some of them, you know, visible behind you that are built on treating strokes and heart attacks. And there aren't some really tall buildings that I can see built on preventing heart attacks. So I want to take um, off on that, though, Farzad. So you, you go from working for arguably the most important regulatory apparatus around healthcare IT. You are leaving the administration that was implementing the ACA, including ACOs, accountable care organizations. You're a primary care physician by training with an epidemiologic you know, fellowship on top of that. And if I recall correctly, 10 years ago or a little more than 10 years ago, you hatched the plan on the back of a napkin, or at least that's how I remember the story going. Can you tell us about how you wanted to leverage your specific expertise, which quite frankly is unique in that way, to launch Allidate and what the original mission of Allidate was and, and how you started that? This idea had me by the lapel. Like, you know, when people say, oh, I want to do a startup and I'm looking around for ideas. Like, I don't get that. Like to me, the most powerful ones are when the idea possesses you. You couldn't imagine not working on this issue in some capacity. And to me, that idea was if we align incentives so that it's profitable to prevent strokes, then everything changes. Everything changes. And so I went to Brookings. I think I left my job on Friday and I started (laughs) on Brookings on Monday. Like it had been a grueling five years of federal service and I was excited as hell Monday morning to show up at Brookings and learn about physician-led accountable care organizations. I just couldn't wait. And I couldn't, I couldn't imagine that there weren't 10 other people doing the same thing and, and who were going to start companies to help independent primary care practices prevent hospitalizations and, and, and redouble their investments in community primary care. It seemed so freaking obvious to me. And the, and the, the napkin that you're talking about was the, this, we, we wrote this, um, uh, the paradox of primary care in, in JAMA 
uh, where I laid out the whole plan for Alidate. And I was like, look, you get 100 primary care docs together. Each of them has 2,000 patients on their panel, and each person costs, let's say, only $5,000 a year in total medical expense. That one group of 100 primary care docs is a billion dollar a year business. It's a billion dollars of total medical spend that if they can manage it better, can, can be plowed back into growth and improvements. And that was, that was the idea then, it is the idea now. You know, it, is, it had like absolutely has not changed one bit, Howie. Like looking back 10 years later, it's still exactly the same business model. There's been no pivots. There's been no, it's just been like, I literally on, on my first day at home, after I was like, okay, I'm gonna start this company. I wrote, get docs, <laughs> get contracts, get savings, get capital. But now we don't worry about that anymore. And, and tell us just briefly, and I'll turn it back over to Harlan. If you had to grade yourself on those measures right now, how successful are you on each of those? Well, like I told Harlan, I'm, I'm tough on tough on myself. I know you are, yeah. Uh, so we're 7% of the Medicare Shared Savings Program, uh, which is the biggest value-based model in the country. About 5% of independent primary care docs are working with us in one way or another. We're the largest independent network in the country, but I would give us there as a very, very uh, incomplete mark uh, on that. We have a lot, 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 lot of room to grow. Getting contracts, I think we are good at. Uh, and, and we signed you know, 60 new contracts last year. We're offering more and more value to our health plan partners and through more value with health plans, more value to practices, which gives more value to health plans, which gives more value to practices. So that is, I think, going well. Um, on get savings, we get about 2% a year incremental you know, cumulative savings. So 2%, then 4%, 6%, 8%. We're about 14% savings on total cost of care now. And I'll tell you, there's a lot more to do. It is like, that is nowhere near the, the peak in terms of what we could do. So I would give us kind of a, an incomplete on that. That having been said, I said we're 7% of the lives in the program. We were five out of the top 10 ACOs by shared savings rate. So we are, you know, relative to others, we are the best at reproducing savings, no matter if you're in Mississippi or Utah or West Virginia or Arkansas. But we, we, we have a lot, a lot of room to grow. I wonder if you could share with listeners a little bit about the origin of this, because, you know, you're not a guy who went to business school and then was sort of steeped in, in business and spent time in McKinsey and then rolled out and said, I'm going to start a company. We've seen that model before. You're a guy who didn't and you didn't leave medical school to say, I'm going straight into this. You did a residency. You go to CDC spend time in public service, you know, a, a while, make great contributions. Now you're thinking about transitioning to a for-profit company. Yeah. So you got a great idea. It's got you by the lapels. What do you do next? Like, how yeah. did it, you know, it's one thing to look at you now and go like, wow, that was amazing. But, but what was it like in those first days where you're trying to figure out how do I get anyone to invest in this? And, and how do I figure out what I need to know to yeah. succeed? Well, look, I, I kind of slipped it, slipped it in, but I, I literally left federal service when Congress couldn't agree on funding the federal government. And I was like, that sucks. <laughs> like being at the mercy of appropriators. And, you know, am I going to get the budget from the mayor next year to do like to be at the mercy of that? I thought like, what an, an unbelievable thing it would be 
if we just did a business that created profits and I got to plow those profits back into growing the damn thing and I didn't need permission, I don't need authorization, I don't need, like, what a hack to do yeah. good if you could, if, if your um, private profit is tied to public good. And that to me is, is you know, kind of why it makes sense for us to be a public benefit. But it's a great idea, but you don't have those skills. So what did you do? How did you, how did you make it work? <laughs> I, I read books. I yeah, know. really? I've got, wow. I've got a really great team of investors at Venrock. I mean, how did it work? You just picked up the phone and said, yeah. I've got an idea. You, of course, knew some people because they'd been in the administration, right? So yeah. probably. Brian, Brian Roberts, actually, who's probably the best healthcare investor in, in, in history, had come in and slept on my sofa when I was rooming with Top Park during the Obama transition. And like the, the dude can afford a hotel room, but, you know, he stayed in our unair-conditioned August Craigslist co-op because we just wanted to talk. Yeah. And we had kept in touch. And when I went and talked to him and Bob Kocher, who, as he said, was in the White House before working for Larry Summers, uh, they were like, yeah, we like this idea. We'll fund you. And that was, wow. we were off to the races. Wow. So you didn't have to shop this around. You, it was love at first sight. You had relationships. You were able to make your pitch. Yeah. People liked it and you were off to the races. That's great. But I think it's also the difference between being a 45-year-old founder yep. being a 25-year-old founder. Yep. And I, I think we, we need more 45-year-olds who've done something in their life who then want to say, you know what, I'm, I'm like, I have, I have something to prove, but I also like, what's the worst thing that can happen to me? Like I make less than my SES salary of $177,600. Like what's the worst thing that's going to happen? But, but the yeah. bow tie must have helped at least a little bit, right? Uh, uh, I want to see you in a bow tie. No, I'm going <laughs> to, you buy me a bow tie. I'll learn how to tie it. Um, I want to, I want to pivot to something that's been in the news lately there is a brewing fraud scandal occurring at the Pretty in Pink Boutique, if it even exists, uh, yes. where $2 billion in urinary catheters have been seemingly billed for for patients that either don't exist or never receive the catheters. And we can put in the link a little more information about it, but I, I'm bringing it to you not to discuss what went on because none of us even know all the details, but Allidade was one of the the institutions that brought this to light, because as I understand it, because you're looking at cost of care, you notice some of these trends occurring in your patient population. And so Allidate got brought into the story as sort of a hero of this story. Can you briefly comment on, on what you know about that? Yeah, look, the, there's fraud in, surprise, surprise, in fee-for-service healthcare system, where if you claim that you provide a service, you get paid, and sometimes it's easier to not provide the service and get paid or claim that you did more and get paid higher or whatever, do things inappropriately. Those are all on, I think, on a spectrum um, between fraud and overuse and misuse and overcoding and whatever that are uh, inseparable from a fee-for-service payment environment. And when you have uh, organizations like ours who uh, not only have completely flipped incentives from every other provider in the healthcare ecosystem, but also have access to data and analytics and technology and relationships with actual human beings in, in primary care uh, and patients, then they can become a potent force for not just doing good within their, within their patients, but also with positive spillover and 
positive externalities to your economist lingo. And, and I think that we have not yet begun to tap the power of these, uh, you know, these associations, these accountable care organizations in policy and in, and in payments. There is no right now, there's no like pathway for us to get paid more by preventing fraud right. than by committing fraud, you know, right. like there's no pathway for us to do that. And similarly, I thought, Howie, that during COVID, the program was put on pause almost. Whereas I was like, what the heck are you thinking about? Like ACOs can be your best friend in getting vaccines out there. They can be your best friends in doing surveillance and being sentinel surveillance sites, right? Like yeah. We're not a like uh, some distraction off to the side that you can't deal with during COVID. Like we can be the shock troops of public health and public good. And I think if I ever went back into public service, that's that would be a lever that I would be sure to pull. Yeah. Maybe you could just take a second because some people listening might be hearing this word ACO and it comes by and, you know, what, what is an ACO and why is it a good idea? And how, how is what you're doing with ACOs different from what other people might be doing with an ACO? What's the secret sauce? Remember I said you get 100 primary care docs together? That is an ACO. It's when you bring together primary care um, uh, providers and they can be in multiple practices or they could be in one big practice that collectively account for enough lives that you can make it a risk pool where you can have actuarially sound estimates of what would what you, would you expect cost to be next year? And then we can compare that to what costs actually are. And if you reduce costs below below your budget, below your benchmark, then you, you've created savings. And some of those savings go to the government, some of them, some and, of them. And just to be clear, instead of paying each of those individuals for everything they do, you're paying them to take care of people in what's called a capitated arrangement. And what you're doing is trying to estimate what would be the cost. You're, you're pulling people together who ordinarily wouldn't have a, any sort of ability to negotiate individually, but you're bringing them together to be able to, to negotiate en masse to be able to provide things at a certain quality. Is that right? I mean, not exactly. Not, not exactly. No, that, that's a little bit like kind of the fee for service model was you bring people together and then you can negotiate usually higher rates from payers because you now have more market power. This is the reason for bringing people together here is to create a population of patients that you can be accountable for that is large enough that it is actually statistically reliable. When we say costs went up or costs went down, there has to be a minimum number of people in a pool so you can make accurate projections. And then you can give me credit for the counterfactual uh, against that, that benchmark. Our practices continue to, to be paid fee-for-service for, service for you know, seeing patients in primary care visits, but they now also have a different income stream that comes in if collectively we kept people healthy and out of the hospital. And it is, Arlen, it's like 50% more pay per Medicare patient for these primary care practices. Mm. We are the average primary care practice with like three docs is getting a check from us of over $200,000. This is real money. We are going to collectively, our practices earned like almost $400 million from reducing cost of care. For I mean, my point was that they can't do this on their own. They need to be able to come together to do That's it. Right. And your Alidate is enabling them to actually stay in practice as That's right. with, with what they're doing. Otherwise, they need to be sucked up into larger healthcare systems right. and, and become employees. 
because it's it's very difficult for individual practices to sustain themselves given the sort of pressures, right? I mean, and 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 that consolidation, I think, uh, Howie will back me up on this, is the single biggest driver of increasing healthcare costs. I think um, we've we've probably kept you long enough today. You know, th- there's so much we could talk about with you, given the sort of breadth of things you're involved in. We all want you to be less hard on yourself. There's really <laughs> a lot to give yourself credit on. And it's a pleasure to talk to you on the podcast. And I hope we get you back again soon because there's a lot more to talk about, as Harlan said. But thank you so much. Thanks, thanks, team. The, the one thing, I, I, if I can, if I can end with, is what makes it tick isn't clever business model or good investors or technology. What really drives it is service. Whether it, you know it was and working for the New York City Health Department or the federal government or now in Allidade, the, the the biggest thing that has benefited the efforts I've been a part of have been the other people who have signed up because they believe in service, service to their to their, their fellow humans. And and that is as strong at Allidade as any of the public service places I've ever worked. Well thank you for what you've done. Great. Well that was terrific, you know, and uh, Farzad's, you know, such a great guest, but now we get to one of my favorite parts of the program, which is to hear what Howard Foreman thinks this week. So what's on your mind? Yeah, I wanted to talk about something a little provocative today so that we could just talk a few minutes. So a week ago, roughly, Apple introduced the Vision Pro. It's a virtual reality headset. It resembles a pair of ski goggles. Uh, it's neither the first nor the last virtual reality headset um, that is already in significant use by gamers and some tech forward individuals who've been developing or testing applications. And in fact, such instruments have been available for like two decades. But this is, this is Apple, which means it's sort of much more likely to enter the mainstream. The implications for healthcare are substantial. So I just want to emphasize that anything I say today will probably be outdated in a few months, but it's still worth highlighting the big questions and some of the early answers. And so you know, do we know the impact of virtual reality headset use on young or even old brains? Because there is strong evidence that it can, quote, rewire the brain, and almost certainly more so among young than old. We just don't know enough about this technology where it could be actually enormously beneficial or enormously harmful if we don't pay adequate attention. Content alone can be dangerous for young individuals, as we've seen with social media, and caution is urged in this regard at this moment. We probably can't impede diffusion through the commercial markets, but we can recommend limits and supervision and work with manufacturers to establish guidelines. So that's the first point. Second point, we should absolutely be doing studies on the impact of this new technology. As the barriers to use are really high right now, remember this device is I think $3,500 and really even more than that once you, once you walk out the door, It's much easier to imagine doing randomized studies now when this is not that accessible than when it scales and almost everybody has it like a smartphone, if that is the future. And then I wanted to tell our listeners, there are already a lot of healthcare applications. I mean, a lot. I can't even name all the categories in our short segment, but they run the gamut from training healthcare workers and managing patients or managing equipment or performing new procedures to treating post-traumatic stress disorder or minimizing the pain associated with back pain or childbirth. They've even demonstrated that the discomfort 
associated with getting an IV in a child can be reduced using a virtual reality headset as compared to the usual distractions that pediatricians and pediatric practices use. And then there's all the additional issues that you and I, Harlan, have talked about over the last few months regarding privacy and AI and so on. So it, to me, is a really exciting topic. And you're tech forward. You're a guy who thinks about these things way ahead of anybody else. I'm curious what you think on each or any of those. Yeah, well, I, you know, I think we're at the cusp of an entirely new era. I've seen a lot of the demos. I, I haven't laid out the money to purchase one of these yet, but uh, you know, I, I did go by the Apple store, take a look at what they look like and how they feel. And it, it's pretty impressive. You know, lots of people think this as version one, you know, as you see the versions come out, it's going to become really, you know, remarkable. Yeah, the applications in healthcare are immense. And we've seen in other fields how people have used augmented reality in lots of different ways, fighter pilots, others, you know, are able yeah. to do this. I, I think the question is really almost I want to turn back to you, Hab, because I think the only restraint here will be on the business model, which is, you know, our healthcare system in the US is very dependent on a, on incentives and business models for speeding adoption of specific technologies. So imagine that we have the potential for a wide range of technologies that could dramatically improve patient outcomes, improve patient comfort and experience, improve the effectiveness of the healthcare professionals in everyday systems. But is it going to be an externality where it's, yeah, we could do that, but there's, there's no revenue implication on it. There's no way to directly pay for it. We don't have a way to support it. Or, or are we going to be focusing on, yeah, if it gets better outcomes, we've got to figure out how to use it. So two things I want to just mention. One is I actually tried to sign up for a demo and it's not available to people that have prisms in their glasses like I do. Uh, so I'm mm. going to encourage you to sign up for it because you got better vision than me and you can do it. They literally won't let me do it. But I want to put that aside. I did a little back of the envelope math on almost exactly what you were asking about. I can imagine a scenario where a company rents these goggles and then is able to bring them to your door like Uber Eats at probably a marginal cost for the equipment in the range of 2 to $5 for an hour's worth of time using a software that could be almost marginal cost of zero and still provide services that might be comparable to a clinical visit that would otherwise cost $50. Like I'm imagining that this actually does scale even at the high price today because it is a very portable device. It's not like moving a CAT scan machine to someone's door. You could get these goggles to eight different homes in a day to deliver services to them. Oh my God, this is just like Farzad said, where a business plan got him by the collar. Howie, this is your call. <laughs> no, it is not. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and if being a CEO at 45 is good, being yeah. at you're 58, 58. Yes. Must yeah. be even better. Yeah. You should, this is it's no, a great idea. I, I am not an entrepreneur, but I do think there's a, a like when I've tried to do the math, because I thought about this, Harlan, in the sense of like, is this yeah. scalable? It's scalable. I'm convinced it's scalable. I just think we need to get roll up our sleeves and actually do the work yes. to prove where does it actually make a difference. So it's not just about a cool device. For example, like the Da Vinci. Robotic devices in surgery have yet to be shown that That's they right. improve outcomes. I think that a lot of people have more fun using yes. them than yeah. they do with traditional yeah. surgery. But, but you know, when these billboards say, go here because we've got the Da Vinci robots, like you're not. And I am worried about the non-healthcare stuff. I mean, I think we should be studying that now. 
I mean, we yeah. should be doing randomized trials with kids, with adults, studying their brains, making sure we're not harming people when no, they get we are, No doubt rewiring people's people's brains. So yeah, yeah there's lots here, lots here to do. And uh, I'm glad you brought this up today. Yeah, I, I've been looking at them with some envy, uh, not buying them yet, but... Uh, but, you know, because I don't know what I would do with it. I think oh, I, I watched the demo and I know what I would do with it. I'd probably oh, just sit and watch a, a video all day. Yeah, for weeks on end. You've been <laughs> listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Krumholtz and Howie Foreman. So how did we do? To give us your feedback or keep the conversation going, you can find me on threads. I'm at T-H-E number four M-A-N. That's at the and the number four M-A-N. And I'm still procrastinating figuring out what I'm doing with social media, but I'm still on Twitter or X at HMK Yale. That's H-M-K-Y-A-L-E. And you can also email us at health.veritas at yale.edu, aside from Twitter and our podcast. I'm fortunate to be the faculty director of the Healthcare Track and founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email for more information on our innovative programs, or you can check out our website at som.yale.edu slash EMBA. And we got this great email that we were going to mention on the thing from uh, John Brush in Centara in Virginia. And I'm not even going to read it because it's so nice. He wrote us such a nice email. But just to say thanks, John, and to encourage other people to reach out to us, send us notes. We read them. We appreciate them. And any constructive comments we're looking forward to, to also getting. Okay, come on, Harlan. Just read the whole thing. It says, your Health and Veritas podcast is just terrific. So informative. I learned more in that short period of time than in any other available information source or learning activity week after week. That is nice. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us on your podcast app. We always read your reviews and it does help other listeners find us. What if they don't like it? They can still rate us, but we prefer <laughs> them to like lie about it. <laughs> Health and Veritas is produced for the Yale School of Management, Yale School of Public Health. Thanks to our researchers in his deal and Sophia Stump, and to our producer Miranda Shea for extraordinary people helping us so much. Thank you. Thank you. We are thank so you. lucky to have them. Talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks very much, Holland. Talk to you soon.